So this summer, we are beginning a uh, uh, series in Ephesians. It'll be a little bit detailed, meaning that we're not going to be like covering chapters at a time. That it's a little, Ephesians is a little too dense to do that. Uh, so we'll be studying little portions at a time. And any portion of scripture that we look at obviously arises out of a context. And I don't expect you to actually remember this, but last year at this time, we were studying the book of Acts. And, uh, and in chapter 18, we saw that uh, the church in Ephesus was founded by a guy named Apollos. In Acts 19, we saw that Paul visited this church and stayed there for three years, teaching them about all the things about the kingdom of God. So every passage of scripture we look at, it arises out of a context. So far, so good, right? But we hear it in our context. And this is the great task of Bible teaching or preaching or whatever. John Stott wrote a famous book, I don't know, 20 years ago or something called Between Two Worlds. And this is where we as hearers and thinkers about and teachers of the gospel stand. We stand between this text that arose not out of the blue, but out of a very specific context and time and space and people. And we live in a very specific and concrete time and place, and we're a certain kind of persons, and we're a certain kind of people. And so as we place ourselves all summer between where we are and how we hear and this text, um, this is our task, is to try to bridge these two worlds and to hear what the Spirit might be saying to us today through this book of Ephesians. Well, if we were to say a word about the context in which we hear Ephesians today, I think we'd have to say at least this. And that is that for many Christians, and I know this anecdotally, I know it from 30 some years of being a pastor, I know it from my academic world and studies and those sorts of things, that for many Christians today, church is the most difficult aspect of following Jesus. Strange to say, but true. I mean, when you think of sort of the ethical worldview of Jesus and all the things that he was up to, you, you know, you would think people would stumble over Jesus and, you know, this life that he was calling us into, but not so. You know, most of us in this room are old enough to remember the kind of hand-wringing that happened in the mainline denominational churches in the 60s and 70s, even into the 80s, you know, where United Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Episcopalians were losing people by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions. Well, that's sort of abated, actually. Not in every case, but mostly that season is over. The dirty little secret of the church today is that every day, a 1,000 evangelicals leave the church. Every day, a 1,000 evangelicals leave the church. So now this is hitting what used to be thought of as, you know, sort of stable churches, Southern Baptists, evangelical free churches, Assemblies of God churches, um, four square churches. Now the evangelical world is beginning to feel this for a different set of reasons, but it's happening. So loads of people are dismissing the church as ineffective, rejecting it for not meeting their expectations or their needs, uh, believing it to be irrelevant. They're dropping out every day. And it's not just you guys. For a number of years now, I can't remember, 10 to 15 years, every study I've seen says that seven out of 10 pastors want to quit too. Seven out of 10. If they could, they would find something else to do. And again, there's lots of reasons for it. 
And there's nobody to blame. If there is, I don't know who it is to blame, and that's not my point today. My point today is to say that as we place ourselves before this text all summer, Paul is writing in very idealistic ways. Uh, Most Pauline scholars view Ephesians as kind of the one text that's not written, written in sort of an ad hoc manner, meaning there wasn't some incident going on that he was then having to write to correct or explain or something, that this is very conceptual, it's very ideal in the best sense of those terms. And so I just know that as we sit before this text, we're gonna be sitting between Paul's ideals and what the vast majority of the culture around us experiences as church. But as much of a bummer as church has been at points in her history, there has always been in existence in places and groups of people all over who live in continuity with what God's doing. This is why the church has never gone out of business. I mean, I think if God could make it through the Crusades, he's probably able to make it through pop culture of the 2000s. All right, so what about this this church in Ephesus? Well, much like us, it was a missionary church. It was a church plant, as I said, established by uh, Apollos. When Paul wrote to Timothy in what we have in our Bibles as 1 Timothy, Paul was instructing Timothy about how to deal with what was going on in Ephesus. And so we know that this church in Ephesus was not perfect. In Revelation 2, remember where John sees a vision of the seven churches and he hears God speak to them about what to say to the churches. He says to the church in Ephesus that I commend you for certain things, but you have lost your first love. And so even this church in Ephesus is not perfect, but in this letter, what Paul's doing is describing what the church is meant to be, which I I work a lot out of metaphors for me and out of my imagination. These things are what help ground me in my life and my own followership of Jesus. So I wanna commend to you just a really solid metaphor. The church, as a colony of heaven, here on earth, that the church is this distinct group of people. We're like a colony on earth of God's people with this very specific task to announce, embody, and demonstrate the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. So in our first few verses, and if you brought your Bible, uh, we're gonna look at verses one through six. They're, in, or they're on your smartphone or they are in the bulletin, whatever, whatever you choose. Um, In these first few verses, Paul describes what the church is meant, uh, that, that not only what it's meant to be, but that how it's formed. And Paul wants us to know that the church is formed by God's will, Christ's presence, and the Holy Spirit's work. Now, any of us who had the privilege of going to seminary uh, learned to hate this passage very quickly. And no, no sane Greek teacher would have ever given this to somebody to try to translate you know, on the first day of class because verses three through 14 are in the Greek one long sentence and impossible to translate unless you're an amazing Greek scholar. But in this, the little part that I wanna choose this morning, verses one through six, and we're really gonna focus on three through six, and I, what I want you to hear this morning out of this is the church as the focus of God's love. That God in love chose us. And this is important again, as we think of standing between these two worlds. For all of us have experienced not being loved. And all of us have experienced the inner turmoil, the feelings, the questions that they prompt, and the kind of heartbreaking, soul-damaging despair that we feel when we're not loved. 
Some of you may remember Alinus Morissette's famous song, Perfect, from the uh, mid-90s, where she sang, if you're flawless, then you'll win my love. And don't forget to win first place, and don't forget to keep that smile on your face. Be a good boy. Try a little harder. You've got to measure up and make me prouder. Be a good girl. You've got to try a little harder. That simply wasn't good enough to make us proud. Be a good boy. Push a little farther now. That wasn't fast enough to make us happy. We'll love you just the way you are if you're perfect. And not just in this room are there rejected people, maybe a few latchkey kids, divorced people, people who maybe have just found themselves kind of socially awkward and just not really sure that they're loved. And all that's very real. It's just that Paul wants us to know that in that reality, that kind of lowercase small r reality, this capital R reality invades it in the love of God. So Paul's in prison, and he's writing to these young churches, and he's praising God for everything that God has done for his people and that comes out of this love. He's explaining God's worldwide plan and how he achieved it in Jesus and, and what it means for ordinary people like us. And essentially, the summary is this, that we've been chosen for adoption into God's family before creation by God's good, loving pleasure. It's a gift it's, it's a divine act. It's, it's a display of his free grace, which then, as we sang this morning, causes us to live a life of praise. So let's look at this a bit verse by verse. First in verse 3, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, if we're going to stand between this text, here's the first thing we need to hear, that Paul never had in mind, never has in mind, the kind of vague spirituality that sits in our culture today. There is no God without Jesus Christ right at the center of it. And any spirituality that does not have this historic person who continues to live today right at the heart of whatever the spirituality is that they're pursuing is a sham. It's not true. It doesn't comport with reality. This is a very concrete person who made the world God and who revealed himself in Jesus. And so there is no sort of God without Jesus right in the middle of it. For he says, again in verse three, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ. And so again, hear the particularity, hear the really important concreteness. God acted for us in Christ. That is all more important than I have time to say. God acted for us. He had us in mind, but he did so in this very particular way, in Christ not in some vague, put together whatever kind of way you want spirituality. Now again, I, I'm not bashing anybody. I get people who do that. I love people who do that. I treasure them as human beings. I'm just saying it doesn't work because it's not real. That's all I'm saying. What's real is something that is really, again, very particular. Then in verse four, we're told that long before God laid down the, the earth's foundation, he had us in mind and he chose us. That is to say, I love the way Eugene gets this in the message, he had settled on us as the focus of his love. And that's the main thought that I wanna put before you this morning. What if this is really true? That before God said, let there be light, he said, let there be Bob. 
Let there be Jane. Let there be Joe. And even before there was space between the waters and the sky and the expanse of the land and water that he had thought of us and had determined to make us the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Now, I know this is a big mystery, and I know that people think of election, you know, all over the map, and I don't mean just in terms of systematic theology, but I mean people think of this all over the map emotionally and just in their own minds. Some people struggle with election because they think, well, that would mean I can just do as I please then. But on the contrary, Paul tells us here that election has actually a moral pull to it. Positively speaking, if you look at your text, Paul says that it makes us holy. Negatively speaking, he says it makes us blameless, that is to say, free from blemish. And this is important for all of us who want to take serious our own spiritual transformation into Christ's likeness. This is important because who we consider ourselves to be determines the direction and shape of our life. So if our kind of unconscious or subconscious default position of ourself is, I'm a consumer, well, that then will determine and shape your life. If it's that I'm mostly a sexual being, then that will determine and shape your life. If it's that I'm trying to, you know, get somewhere that I'm not, that that will then in turn determine and shape your life. But what if this could determine and shape our lives? You're the focus of God's love and that he called you to be his agents on the earth. Salt and light, uh, Isaiah talked about and, and Jesus talked about. Ambassador of the kingdom, as Paul talked about. Just start thinking of all the metaphors in the New Testament. See, those don't come out of the blue. They arise precisely out of this story. But when we say to ourselves, well, I'm only human. I can't change human nature. That's the kind of permissiveness that is rampant in our culture today because we've, we've, we've separated ourselves from this concrete God and his concrete purposes. So all that's left then is this kind of permissiveness, but it doesn't provide purpose. A kind of doing whatever feels good, but it really doesn't give us any meaning. But pursuing spiritual transformation in alignment with God's choosing of us actually does produce meaning in our lives. And it causes us, as Paul said, to be holy. Now, what does holy mean? Holy simply means different or to be separated. So I think I've told you before, if I have a palm full of coins, you know, pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, whatever, half dollars, dollars, and I choose the nickel, I've made it holy. I've chosen it, I've separated it, and so I've made it holy. That's all the word really means, but here's the catch. It doesn't mean to be separated from the world, it means to be different from the world while within it. And this is why all summer as we go through this and, and you know, the emails you get, you know, every week from Michelle and the things that Joe puts on the website, they're going to have this rhythm of a journey inward and a journey outward because holiness, our sanctification, our transformation into Christ-likeness is never meant to separate us from the world. It's more like this. God put his finger on the nickel and the nickel stays amongst all the coins but God's finger on it makes it holy. His choosing of it, his election of it, makes it different. So Paul tells us, verse four and five, that long ago he predestined us. He decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. 
And again, I, you know, I've, I'll just never forget, I was in Calvary Chapel Bible School, in Twin Peaks, up in the mountains, the very first time I heard anybody use the word predestination, and I, I was stuck between murder and suicide. I didn't know if I wanted to murder the teacher or kill myself, because I just couldn't get this. It just made absolutely no sense to me. I was so angry. And so, I mean, I just know what this doctrine uh, does to people. And so the first thing to know is this is not about Augustine, and it's not about Calvin, and it's not about Luther, and it's not even about modern-day Calvinists, who I sometimes wonder if they actually read Calvin, but modern Calvinists. It's not about any of that. This is a deep and holy mystery that none of us really get, and part of the reason we don't get it is our subjective experience is that we chose God. That's how we all feel, Right? I mean, all of us were wrestling at one time, and it feels like we took a step or we changed something in our mind. See, there's a verb that gets attached to us as the subject, and I get it. It's just that that's us responding to God. So I would encourage you to, for the purposes of hearing this, you being the focus of God's love, to take this out of the realm of systematic theology, out of the realm of logic, as important as systems and logic are, but hear it this morning relationally. That again, what if it's really true that God said, before he said, let there be light, he said, let there be you. And you're the focus of my love. I mean, I really love the plants and the birds and the teeming things in the ocean, and I love all that too, but you're the focus of my love. What if that began to be the determining aspect of your both subconscious and conscious being? I think that's the vision that Paul has in telling us about this. I don't think Paul meant to spur the writings of thousands of books on systematic theology with the Arminians, you know, arguing with the Calvinists and blah, blah, blah. But what if he just wanted us to hear something like this? Instead of a fickle, angry God, what there really is in God's choosing you, a ground of confidence, a a place where we can have faith and to realize that our salvation rests entirely on God. And if you, you know, think of Paul's writing to the Romans, not just our salvation, not just our election and our salvation, but our ultimate glorification, Paul gets down to, that that's all in this ground of confidence. Our reading in Deuteronomy helped us saying, it's because the Lord your God loved you that he chose you. So I think this is what Paul wants us to hear this morning in this notion of us being the focus of God's love. I can almost hear Paul kind of wrestling with the notion of what makes church, church? What makes church, church? And I think Paul would say, it's not what we do. It's what God does, though we participate in it. See, if you hear it in just those very simple relational terms, God initiated, he called, but his calling has all these verbs to it. Are you feeling me here? His calling isn't just a bunch of adjectives things that describe us. There's all these verbs attached to it in God's calling. It's just that the the action that comes from those verbs doesn't have its initiation in us. It It has its initiation in this God who before he laid the foundations of the earth said, you're the focus of my love. 
And then again, I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. He says, what pleasure he took, what pleasure God took in planning this. For some of you, this is gonna be one of the most important freeing thoughts you've literally ever heard in your life. I just believe for probably two, three, or four of you, this is gonna be life-changing. What if God is warm and smiling and not really pissed? I mean, can you conceive of that? What if he's actually the most joyous being in all the cosmos? So think of the photographs that the Hubble telescope sends back to us. Universe after universe after universe, farther than anyone can even understand, the greatest minds in physics in all the world are now stumbling over, you know, understanding the expanse of God's creation. Well, what if he sits in the middle of that full of joy? Warm and smiling and happy at his choosing and delighted that you're the focus of his love. Well, this is exactly what our gospel reading invites us into this morning. If you look at it in John 10, Jesus says, my sheep. So these are all the people that God has chosen and given Jesus to shepherd. He says, my sheep recognize my voice. I know them. See, hear that relational thing again? I know them. And they follow me. Now, here in the word follow, again, something relational, but verbal. There's something for us to do there, for us to participate in. He says, I give them real and eternal life, and they're, they're protected from the destroyer forever. The father who put them under my care is so much greater than the destroyer and the thief. Do you hear that? The father who, who said before he said, let there be light, said you're the focus of his love. He put you in Jesus's care, and Jesus is saying, no one can ever take them away from me. So maybe you've not in the past considered God this warm, smiling, joyous person who chose you, but maybe this morning you can hear him calling you in that way, maybe reminding you of his love for you. Maybe for one or two of you, God's asking you to drop your accusations against him. Maybe for one or two of you, you can hear him inviting you again to be his people or to maybe rethink a point of view that's not working for you. Maybe one or two of you, you hear him asking you to come back to him, to trust him again, to kind of step over the line again, to commit, to believe and follow this God who before there was land and sea said, you are the focus of my love. Amen.